fairy tales can come true. It can happen to you if you're young at heart. For it's hard you will find to be narrow of mind if you're young at heart. You can go to extremes with impossible schemes. You can laugh when your dreams fall apart at the seams, and life becomes exciting with each passing day. And love is either in your heart or on its way. Don't you know that it's worth every treasure on earth? Be young at heart, for as rich as you are, it's much better by far to be young at heart. And if you should survive to a hundred and five, look at all you derive just by being alive. Here is the best part. You have a head start if you are amongst the very young that are. You should survive to a hundred and five. Look at all you derive just by being alive. Now here is the best part: you have a head start if you are amongst the very young at home. Welcome to the show. My name is Dr. Hassan Malik. I'm a psychiatry trainee in Lancashire. Pleased to share that I'm going to become a higher trainee soon, and I'm going to specialize further in adult psychiatry and old age psychiatry. As you would, I ask around uh, with my peers and colleagues who who work with me, and just to see what everyone else was doing with their time and future careers. And uh, one gentleman in particular. Uh, was very very convinced that old age psychiatry is the way to go. He, in my trust, where I work, he's won the higher trainee of the year twice in a row. We call those the Gosal Awards. He's also won multiple uh, commendations or awards for teaching, as well as contributions to different fields, not only in psychology. The gentleman I referred to earlier, his name is Dr. Thomas McConnell. So I gave a little bit of an overview of. Um, just your roles and titles but can you tell me a bit about what you do and how do you spend your time in the clinic absolutely well i'm i'm absolutely delighted to join you hassan and you're completely right i am very strong believer that the that psychiatry is is the best medical specialty and 
more than that, I'm convinced that of all of the different psychiatric subspecialties, old age psychiatry is the best of all of them. So for anybody listening to this, I really strongly encourage you to to do your best at whatever you're doing. But if that thing happens to be old age psychiatry, well, I think you've that's the best choice you can make for me, you know. So can you share a bit about, about your journey? I, I know that you had quite a roundabout way and I can totally vouch for um vouch for you that you've you've have sampled different specialties and then you've decided that yes old age psychiatry is the one for you so i've had a probably a slightly non-standard route to medicine and then to psychiatry i initially went to university to study psychology uh, because i had a, a real interest in kind of how people think about the world and how people experience the world and how people feel about the world and when I went to university first, I was actually studying both religious studies and uh, psychiatry. And over time, I became more interested in the more sort of scientific aspects of uh, sort of human experience. And I drifted a bit away from religious studies and I uh, switched my uh, study to full time psychology. And then in about the second or third year of studying psychology, I decided that I felt I was had more to give really to medicine uh, as a as a discipline and so I applied I finished my degree in psychology and I applied for medical school and uh, I really enjoyed medical school and as I was going through I always really enjoyed psychiatry but I really enjoyed surgery a lot as well so I studied uh, after I did my foundation training I did two years of surgery training and did all my exams the MRCS exam and then I got to a point where perhaps I felt that with surgery, it was really enjoyable. Um, but ultimately, I, I had a really difficult experience in my life, to be truthful, Hassan. I had a friend who became um, very unwell and then sadly died. And I, I was very involved in looking after him. And um, I realized that one thing that I really took from it was how much he valued his work his job he was a uh, he was a university lecturer and how much he really wanted to basically get back to doing that you know and it wasn't going to happen tragically but i realized i looked at my job and i thought that just isn't how i feel about surgery i really like it but i don't really love it i don't really feel that kind of passion and vocation for it that he did and, and i kind of felt unsatisfied really with surgery after that and i i knew i probably couldn't really continue and after a bit of searching and thinking about maybe doing general practice or maybe going into academia or maybe uh, doing public health medicine i uh, i decided that really i'd go back to what i had been interested in kind of from the start which was was kind of the human mind and and uh, and psychiatry and I've been extremely happy with that and it's a it's a fantastic meeting point of the scientific and the cultural uh, psychological lots of different elements of lots of different ways of understanding human beings and human experience and it brought them all together for me into one discipline and it also gave me a way of kind of helping people and doing something which was kind of hopefully valuable for people and and could improve people's lives and make people more comfortable and so i uh, i have stuck with that and and then within that i've chosen old age psychiatry 
I'm, I'm sorry for your loss. Um, although I'm, it's kind of bittersweet that, that your friend did inspire you to kind of recalibrate your life and see what's really how you want to spend the time that you have here. Old age psychiatry is a huge topic. What, what do you have in store for us today? Well, as you, as you say, old age psychiatry is a huge topic and, it, and it's such a huge topic because it's really all of sort of psychiatry of, for adults because anything that can happen to an adult can happen to somebody above the age of 65. Um, but it also includes the need to be quite knowledgeable and expert on a group of disorders which are very unusual in people below 65. And, and that's mostly the sort of dementias and uh, neurocognitive disorders. Uh, so I think it'd be really good to talk about dementia because that's one of the things that's kind of unique really to old age psychiatry. We, we, you know, we are as old age psychiatrists really the experts, I think, in in diagnosing and, and managing dementia. Uh, and uh, it'd be good to talk about that. It'd be good to talk about the approach we take to supporting people with dementia, both through some medications we use, but also through the broader um, kind of array of interventions that we have available um, and uh, possibly we could think about some of the challenges that certainly I face in my working life to do with working with people who have and families who have somebody in the family who has behavioural and psychological symptoms in dementia, sometimes called BPSD. Things were all good yesterday and then the devil took your memory And if you fell to your death today I hope that heaven is your resting place I heard the doctors put your chest in pain But then that could have been the medicine And now you're lying in the bed again Either way I'll cry with the rest of them And my father told me son It's not his fault he doesn't know your face And you're not the only Although my grandma used to say that he used to see Darling, hold me in your arms the way you did last night Took your breath away And now we're left here in the pain Black suit, black tie, standing in the rain And now my family is one again Stickled together with the strangers and a friend Came to my mind I should paint it with a pen Six years old I remember when My father told me son It's not his fault he doesn't know your face And you're not the only one Although my grandma used to say He used to see Darling, hold me in your arms the way you did last night And we'll lie in the A little while here, oh I 
Thomas, there's a gentleman who comes to you in your clinic and he says, or she says that I've been more forgetful recently and I've, um, I've noticed I forget people's names or sometimes I don't recognize their faces. I've heard about dementia and I'm, I'm kind of scared. What, what, how would you approach this situation? What would you assess and what would you tell them about the risks they have of actually having dementia? And this is, this is a very common reason to come and see an old age psychiatrist. I think before we talk too much more about how we go through the assessment, it's really important to understand the distinction between when we say dementia, what we mean, and when we say cognition, what we mean, and then when we say this, the disorders like Alzheimer's disease or a vascular dementia, what we mean by these all separate things and how they relate together. So I think the first thing to say is to understand what cognition is. So cognition really just describes the thinking skills and the reasoning skills and the skills we use or our brains use to process and uh, manage the world and manage experience. When we talk about cognition, we think of it in several different domains. And these are quite intuitive, I think. You know, when you think about how people deal with the world, it makes sense that it's a set of skills to generate, you know, to come up with speech like I'm doing now or to understand speech, which is perhaps what you're doing if you're listening to this podcast. But we also have skills that we perhaps think a bit less about, like our ability to do practical tasks. And that's a that's a cognitive skill or our ability to direct attention. And that's another cognitive skill or a cognitive domain we call kind of executive functioning. And that's executive functioning in the sense of it's the ability to direct attention to certain things and keep things, keep attention on things that we need to keep attention on. So that would mean everything from dressing yourself in the morning to, you know, cooking a meal. So all of that would require some kind of executive decision or planning or sustained attention. Exactly. But also sometimes we need to have divided attention. So sometimes we've got, you know, one person saying one thing to us. We've got our little kid saying, daddy, 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 I need this. I want to buy this sweet. And then we've got the shop teller saying to us, um, the bill is X number of pounds. And then we've got somebody behind us saying, you know, oh, sorry, we've I've mixed up my items with your items on the conveyor belt. So that ability to keep attention in several different places and move attention between different things, that all is a cognitive domain as well. But the cognitive domain that we most commonly think of with dementia is memory, to the extent that many people really, when you say dementia, they just think of memory and a memory illness. So memory is obviously store is something which is the function of brain of the brain and can you talk a little bit about how memory is usually formed and then how it breaks down kind of in in dementia for sure again with memory i think it's fair to say that there are some different um theories out there probably the best um established cognitive theory tells us that there's a sort of series of buffers into a long-term memory store so we have a kind of perceptual buffer. And when we say buffer, we mean a kind of short term storage area. And then when things ex come into that short term buffer, they can either be then put through to short term memory or they can be kind of discarded, almost forgotten. And then when they're in the short term memory, uh, they can either just stay there for a short period of time and then go and be forgotten or 
if they're kind of rehearsed repeatedly or they're very important, they're very salient, they can then enter a long-term memory store. And that long-term memory store then is where we retrieve memories from later on. And that's really important to understand that because there's several different components of what go into making a memory. So the first one is we have to actually be able to attend to uh, and pay attention to the important things happening in the environment. The second thing is that we then need to be able to get things from the short-term memory store into the long-term memory store. And then the final thing is that we need to be able to retrieve memory from the memory store back to the sort of the, the processing bit of the brain, remember the memory. And that can be important because sometimes people can have um, a deficit in different places. So for instance, if someone's struggling to uh, pay attention to things, they may not be able to be very good at forming new memories. And as an example of this, if you imagine you're trying to revise for an exam and you've got like music blaring and you've got kids running around or the dogs barking or your mum maybe is shouting at you about needing to do something, it's very difficult to pay attention and remember. But if you're sat in a very quiet, peaceful space without too much distracting you, it's much easier to get those memories in. So which part of this, uh, this chain of events and forming memories is affected in, in dementia? It can vary. And in fact, all of them, to some extent, can be impacted in dementia. We think that probably this, the process of encoding new memories is one of the earliest ones to get affected in the most common forms of dementia. And then the ability to draw back old memories um, is then affected a bit later. However, it can just depend a bit on what type of dementia you have. Yeah, and I think it's not only dementia, but other things, even like, like you mentioned, it, even, for example, in depression, it can be harder to make memories or to remember things as well. And mood can also affect this. Uh, am I Is correct it, in saying that? That's absolutely true. Yeah. And, and in fact, it can not only do that, but it can actually impact the type of memories that we're able to make and the type of mem memories we're able to bring back. So when somebody's depressed, one of the things we know for depression is that people often feel quite bad. They feel quite negative about the world. And when they have that worldview, it's more difficult to remember good things that are happening into in, encode those good experiences into memories. And it's also more difficult to remember kind of uh, positive memories. So it's easier to draw back and recall a a bad memory when you're depressed than it is to recall a good memory. And that can be one of the challenges when we're working with people with depression is that it can feel like and it can the memories that come back to you are all kind of bad and it's more difficult to remember good times. And that can be one of the things that when we do psychological therapies in depression, we can work on to try and help people adjust to that. Okay, so you talked about cognitive domains and how memory is usually the one, one of the first things that you that you see in your clinic. Going back yes. to our, to our gentlemen, and they're they're complaining about you know being more forgetful or having some uh, like not being able to recognize things. How will you assess whether it's something like what we talked about, whether it's depression or whether it's dementia? What would you ask them? Is there any tests, any blood tests, anything like that you would do? I think understanding that that's what cognition is, we can then think about and we need to be very careful to make a good diagnosis for somebody. And so we can think about what a dementia syndrome is. And when we say syndrome, we mean 
uh, a condition where there are multiple different components of it, which we recognize cluster together, but for which not necessarily every single component is always present. So we know when we talk about dementia, we're talking about a loss of cognitive ability in excess of what would be expected for somebody's age. And we're talking about a situation where that happens without any other cause being able to be identified and where the likely cause is one of the dementia illnesses. And it's really important to understand that because as people get older, their uh, cognitive ability changes and it can decline over time. And that's a normal part of ageing. And in fact, that's going on from quite early on in your life. You're starting to lose those abilities. But when we talk about dementia, it's not just the normal loss of those abilities. It's something in excess of that. And it's in excess of that. And it's in excess of that in a way that causes you to lose the ability to do things that are important to you, that are important to your life. So, for instance, some people might be losing the ability to navigate and navigate around town. And that's important because we need to be able to do things like go to the shops or, uh, you know, go to a restaurant. When we talk about dementia, though, we need to think about how we're going to diagnose it. And the really two key elements of diagnosis in dementia are to take a really good history from the person, but also from if at all possible, from a close um, friend, family member of the person. And that's really important because when we've got dementia, we sometimes don't realise that we're losing abilities in certain places. But it's also very important to take a good, robust history and assessment to look for any other potential causes, because we're always looking if there could be a reversible cause of this. Dementia is, is very difficult to treat and we don't have any cure for dementia. But depression is a much more treatable illness. So we don't want to diagnose somebody who's got depression. And I think about um, the Alzheimer's Disease International um, NGO or charity organization says about 75% of people with dementia are not diagnosed, which can go up to 90% in some low and middle income countries. It's kind of a staggering figure considering there's about Huge. like, you know, 50 million plus already with dementia and the WHO says that's going to increase over the next few years or going to show an increasing trend till 2030, where they think it's going to get closer to about 75 million. So you were talking about a good diagnosis and treat what you can. So what, what is a reversible cause or a treatable cause of dementia? I'll just say one final thing, which is so we've got the history and the clinical assessment, as mm -hmm. we would do with all psychiatric patients, so in fact, all patients will take a good history and do a good examination. But then the second part is that we do some form of cognitive testing. And then with those two together, we sometimes do brain imaging as well. And really, ideally, we'll do brain imaging. That's partly to rule out any other cause. As you say, the, some of the other causes of changes in cognition, changes in cognition can be things like um, structural diseases of the brain, so brain tumours, or some cases subarachnoid, hem uh, sorry, uh, subdural hematomas. Um, but it also, sometimes we can use those, that brain imaging to help us make a diagnosis of a particular type of dementia. And so when we're, if we see a loss of brain tissue in certain areas, those patterns can be characteristic of certain dementia types. You mentioned a subdural hematoma. Well, what is that? 
So subdural hematoma is a condition that happens most commonly in older, frail people, um, and it's more common in people who are taking blood thinners. Um, but it's a condition where, uh, usually following a head injury, blood starts to collect uh, between the uh, bone of the brain and one of the covering layers of the brain, and it slowly squashes the brain over time and can cause the brain to then sort of basically not be able to function, and so people lose cognitive ability. And that's very important because it's a completely treatable. It's something that the neurosurgeons can drain off the um, the blood or usually by that point it's kind of liquefied to water, a kind of watery serous um, fluid and they can drain that off and then people get better. So it's really important to to make sure that you've found any reversible cause of dementia and treated it. Vitamin deficiencies as well, certain vitamin B12, I think, can also cause that. I'm, I'm, I'm liking our conversation today because it's testing me a bit from my exam memory as well. <laughs> um, so you've done some brain imaging. You've taken taken a good history. Anything more you, you would have to do before you can make that call? Well, really, no. In many cases, that's the sort of core of it. We always do a sort of baseline set of blood tests, and that's, as you say, B12, folate. Um, sometimes we do iron studies. If it's clinically indicated, we might think about doing HIV or syphilis, which again can be causes of cognitive changes. HIV in itself can be a cause of dementia as well, so that's quite important to identify. And in some cases, we might look for uh, uh, sort of conditions like Wilson's disease and once we've done that if we need to do brain imaging we've done that we usually try and do brain imaging if it's sort of safe and appropriate to do so that is the core of the diagnosis for certain people we may do some additional tests and those additional tests could be further neuroimaging and that could be uh, neuroimaging that looks at um, things like um, a DTA, so a DAT scan, which looks at dopamine transport. And in certain types of dementia, that can be a diagnostic form of imaging for a particular type of dementia. Uh, but we might also sometimes look at more uh, kind of complex neuropsychiatric testing. And that's where a neuropsychologist will meet with somebody and they will do a complex, uh, you know, an extended battery of tests that really finely characterize uh, cognitive ability in many 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 different domains in several different ways and that can be helpful in equivocal cases where it's difficult to know if it's definitely a dementing syndrome or if it's not and so we use that for for a select subgroup and a, a final type of really important um but sometimes forgotten unfortunately type of uh testing that we do is we can use things like an AMPS test and this is de delivered by occupational therapists who are specialists in uh, memory assessment and the occupational therapists are really good at looking at people's fine ability to conduct quite complex daily tasks and I think the example of that is to think about how many different steps it would take for you to make a sandwich and a cup of tea, you know, getting the bread out of the cupboard, getting the cheese out of the fridge, getting the milk out of the fridge, filling the kettle with water, putting the kettle on the boil. And so those tests can be really helpful in just picking out in those kind of borderline cases, you know, is there is this dementia or is this not? You know, where exactly is the functional level for this person? 
you've done all these tests on that uh, gentleman and you let's say that unfortunately they do have this this diagnosis the patient wants to know why why them in particular is there something about certain individuals which makes them more likely to have dementia are there risk factors to it there are absolutely risk factors and i think this is a very common question for people you know why why has this happened to me or why has this happened to my loved one and it's very important i think that we remember that nobody is ever to blame for developing these conditions they are just devastating um extremely unfortunate things to happen to people and although that there are modifiable risk factors it's very important never to feel to let people feel like they're to blame for what's happened the key risk factors though the key risk factor though is age and that dementia just gets more common as you get older to the extent that really by the time you're in your ninth decade your 90s you know you're getting into the point where you know almost you know 35 to 50% of the population would have will have dementia by the time they're coming to the end of their 90s at least um global estimates of that vary i think it's important to say but nonetheless age is the biggest risk factor there are some non-modifiable things by which i mean things that you couldn't change and they are your genetics and we know there are certain genes which are associated with uh people who have a, f- a very strong family preponderance very strong uh inherited uh type of dementia but there are also uh genetics which just increase the risk of it this is things like apoe4 other things that we can't change are our ethnicity and uh if we have a condition like or if we are somebody who has down syndrome we obviously can't change that but it does increase our can increase risk or it does increase risk for somebody with down syndrome there are modifiable risk factors and these are really important i think to communicate to people um who ha- are at high risk of developing dementia it's really important to communicate to everybody though because they're things that we can all uh, you know we can all change and those tend to be things like uh, diabetes central obesity in middle age consuming alcohol and certainly consuming alcohol uh, above what the sort of safe limits are considered or relatively safe limits are considered by the government as published at the moment and i think 14 units of alcohol a week smoking and all of these head injuries all of these things are risk factors for for developing dementia so thomas we've, we've talked about uh cognition memory the dementia syndrome how do we assess and diagnose as well as some risk factors i'd i'd like to go to our next song for now and i want to come back and talk about how we can help and what the role of old age psychiatrists are in the approach for caring for dementia our next song will be by mr glen campbell he sadly passed away in 2017 but before that in 2011 he came came out as having uh, alzheimer's disease and he went on a farewell tour with his daughter and one of his or the last song that he made before his passing is called i'm not gonna miss you fine 
Welcome back to the show. I'm in the studio with Dr. Thomas McConnell, who's a higher trainee, old age psychiatrist. Uh, so Thomas, we were talking about having diagnosed someone with, with dementia and um, the kind of problems that you can have at memory and, and socially as well. So you as a health professional, how would you help someone who um, who has dementia? So I think the first thing um, to do is that we need to give people a good quality diagnosis. And so we've done our assessment. We've come up with a robust understanding. We're, we're confident we're not missing a treatable disorder. Um, we can identify that this is a dementia syndrome and we can identify the disease that we think is causing it, be that an Alzheimer's disease or a vascular disease or some other form of, of disease which causes dementia. And I think that's really important because that makes a difference to how we support people best. And it also makes a difference to prognosis or the length of time people can hope to have particular abilities to do things and when somebody will eventually die. I think the really key thing when you explain these things is to recognise that it causes a huge amount of fear, understandably, for people when they're coming to you with these and it's very important I think to go through carefully and slowly but also make sure we do good things like write to people after the diagnosis with their clinic letter and in our practice locally we have a follow-up service and that certainly should be something that most memory clinics do and that after a diagnosis has been given you see a memory specialist nurse and they have time to go through that with you because it's such an overwhelming thing for people sometimes to hear and can be a piece of absolutely devastating news for people but when that has been delivered it's really important to think about the person themselves what their priorities are what, how they feel about the different types of things that we can do. There is no robust cure for dementia at this time. Having said that, there is things on the horizon like aducanumab, which is just approved in the USA for use, which may be a treatment for dementia and certainly they're likely to come in the future. Um, but at this time in the UK, we don't have access to that. And it certainly is something which is a lot of debate about whether it's really, truly effective. So I, I know that we have a couple of treatments or a couple of medications to slow down the progression or the decline. But but like you said, there's, there, it's not curative. We can't stop the breakdown or the neurodegeneration of the brain itself. Is that it? Is, that, is medicine the only, only option we have for support? So it's not by any stretch of the imagination. And I think one of the things that's really important to understand with dementia, and in fact, why I personally, I really take a lot of value from working in the field in, with dementia, because there's always something that we can do for people. So often that can be things to do with medication that can help to retain cognition, retain ability and function for a period of time or at least slow down the loss of that. But even aside from that medication treatment, there are things that we can do at every stage of dementia up until the point where somebody is at the end of their life, where we can always do things which are going to improve people's function, improve the meaningfulness and value that they experience in their life and that their carers have. And 
improve the kind of experience of uh, for them. The key things we tend to look at would be in the early stages, we try and very much encourage people to try and reduce the risk factors that they have. So this would be, as we've said before, things like trying to deal with obesity, uh, consumption of alcohol and so on. So look at diet, look at exercise, smoking, alcohol consumption. But we also have options like psychological interventions, and this can be reminiscence therapy and narrative therapies. And that can be really helpful for helping people to, you know, remember things that are important to them and find ways of doing it. We can sometimes look at kind of tricks and tips to help people uh, kind of, you know, get by in the world, compensate for some of the loss of cognition that they're experiencing. And uh, we can use things like optimizing an environment for somebody. And this gets really important as dementia becomes moderate and then severe to help reducing boredom or isolation that people can sometimes encounter when they have dementia. And then finally, really important that we support people's caregivers. And that can be through third sector organizations or charitable organizations that support people. It can be through respite for carers. It can be through financial assistance and all of those things are really important to kind of support the person and see them not just as the, the patient themselves, but see that person in the broader family and social networks that support them. So if we can get that right, we can often get much better outcomes for people. Having said all of that, we do use memory drugs and they are helpful for a group, uh, you know, a proportion of patients, although not everybody. The memory drugs are really primarily developed and used for Alzheimer's types of dementia, and they are acetylcholinesterase inhibitors and memantine. And these help to improve and stabilize cognition. Uh, sorry, they can improve cognition for a small group of people, and they stabilize cognition for a large group, and they slow the decline for another group of people. So they're valuable, but they can have side effects. And so it's always a balance for the individual. In this narrative, does the individual themselves, do they have insights? Are they aware of the decline of their memory and that things are not what they seem? Is their insight preserved? That varies, I think, for every individual. And certainly some people in particularly the early stages can be quite aware and quite anxious because they realize that they're forgetting things or that they're having other cognitive difficulties. But as the disorder progresses, as the dementia progresses, um, usually people will lose insight and they'll not realize that they're unwell. Okay, and um, I also read a little bit about some alternative therapies like uh, music therapy, aromatherapy. Is that used here in the UK? So, yes, although I think it probably varies a lot by different uh, areas you know it really probably relies on having somebody in that area who has the skills to deliver those those uh, interventions the evidence for them is reasonable um, but it's I think it's one of those things where I guess most kind of specialists would say the the negative effects of it are likely to be very limited when it's delivered properly and so even though the evidence basis for it is somewhat it lacks some definition, it's probably worth considering for people. So there is the 
the actual disease itself, let's say the breakdown of, of, of the brain and we talked about genes and their effect and risk factors as as well. You mentioned PPSD in the beginning. Well, can you talk about that and how, how you uh, how you treat or how you, what, what, what is that? What are the, what should I say, um, auxiliary or concurrent other problems that go along hand in hand with dementia as well? Sure. So BPSD uh, stands for Behavioural and Psychological Symptoms in Dementia, and it describes the range of different um, experiences that people have as the dementia syndrome goes on, progresses, uh, that cause difficulty and distress for them or other people. And it's very, very common. In fact, almost everybody with dementia will have some form of BPSD at some point. So it's very important that we understand how the best way to approach it is. So it's really important to think of people holistically and think of all the different things that can go, uh, you know, into making somebody struggle or feel unsettled. And we can think about that in terms of physically so is somebody feeling physically unwell because they've got an infection like a urine infection or a dental infection or an ear infection so when i'm asked to assess somebody with with bpsd one of the things that i might be talking to their family about would be to say you know are there particular times that your um you know this person is getting distressed or upset or having these experiences and if they say oh it's particularly meal times that might make me think well are their teeth sore? Are they getting pain from a dental infection? Or if somebody's pulling at their ear, does that suggest that they might have an ear infection? Or if it's, uh, you know, they're seeming upset when they pass urine or they're passing a lot of urine, does that suggest a urine infection? We then also might think about very common things. So things like constipation. And, you know, I don't want to, you know, make anybody feel uncomfortable if they're eating their dinner while they're listening to this. But, you know, if you've ever felt really bunged up and and like you haven't been, you haven't moved your bowels for, for a period of time and you feel really uncomfortable with it, it can be difficult. You know, if somebody's asking you to do something else and pay attention to things and you're feeling really uncomfortable, people without dementia can struggle a bit. So for somebody who's got dementia and struggles to make sense of all the different things that are happening for them that they're feeling and sensing, you know, that can be a big challenge. And obviously that's very treatable with laxatives and so on. Yeah, I, I think w w one thing to kind of uh, reiterate is that because communication deteriorates with time as well, so not only voicing your own needs as well as understanding communications, so both of them deteriorate. So then it sounds a bit like detective work where the patient themselves cannot unfortunately communicate what the problem is with them and what they need help with. Absolutely. I think the other things that we tend to think about are, could there be, um, you know, mental experiences for this person that are, you know, unpleasant, uncomfortable? So, for instance, are people feeling bored? Are people feeling lonely? You know, and although it's upsetting to think about, it's very important that we always remember the possibility of elder abuse and neglect because that can sometimes present with these BPSD symptoms. And so we always need to keep that in our mind. Is there a safeguarding angle to what we're doing here? You know, is there a risk that this person could be being not treated well, treated badly? And just uh, quickly, as we're nearing the end, end of this uh, segment, what are the risks, if any, to other people uh, 
how bad does the deterioration get? So certainly when we think about risks in, in dementia, it's really important to think about the risks that that person might pose to themselves, the risk that person might pose to other people and the vulnerabilities for that person. And certainly, you know, risks to other people can be if someone's very aggressive or sexually disinhibited. That's very important to understand that. And it's very important to understand that people can be can feel terrible about putting their hand up and saying, look, I don't feel safe with my husband or wife anymore. And and that can be really important to support people at that time and recognize how upsetting it can be that somebody who's been your partner for many many years is now you know at a point where you can't really safely look after them at home because you're at risk or they're at risk to themselves and uh how, how would you how would you treat that if someone's becoming let's say aggressive is there a role for Usually, for example, in, in younger age groups, we if someone has aggression or impulsivity, we use things like antipsychotics. So the key element of this, I think, is to try and work out as well as possible, you know, get as good an understanding as possible as to what's causing what you're seeing and what was what what the person is struggling with or those around them are struggling with. Because once you understand what the underlying driver of that is, you're in the best place to try and treat that and reduce that risk, reduce that difficulty. However, we do use uh, psychotropic medication. So we sometimes um, use things like sedata uh, sedating medication, like benzodiazepines. Um, we do use antipsychotic medication. I think the really important thing to say is that we use it as infrequently and at the lowest dose and for the shortest period of time as is possible. And the reason for that is that it is associated with a significantly increased risk of death, morbidity, and it's really important to understand that. So it, it is used and it can be necessary in some people, but the benefits of it have probably been less, we recognize now that the benefits of it are probably less than they'd seem to be from research in the past and that it's something which really we would only look to use where there was no other option everything else had kind of been tried and the risks were such that we felt that the risks of using this medication were less than the risks of not using this medication i'm, I'm kind of uh, happy to hear that you you seem not to treat medications or or let's say drugs as the first line then you always seem to whenever i ask you about management you always seem to come back to what does this person need and how can i kind of avoid using something which might end up causing more harm than good or which should be used as a last resort like you said i think that's very true and and i think one of the things that again talking about psychiatry as a as a profession you know is so satisfying about working in mental health and it's particularly satisfying working as a psychiatrist for older adults is that it we have this opportunity to understand the person holistically and it's an enormously powerful uh, frame to have on human experience to just put the picture together as best we can and i sometimes think it's a bit like having different lenses and maybe in in other aspects of life we tend to use one particular lens. You know, we use a psychological lens or we use a biomedical lens or we use a social lens. But in psychiatry, 
we can use all of those lenses to understand different things in different ways. And if one lens isn't helping us, if the social or the psychological lens isn't helping us, the biomedical lens may help us to bring something into focus and understand and find a way forward with things. And so I, I personally find that one of the most satisfying elements of my job is that I can deploy these different kind of ways of understanding human beings and human experience you know, for the benefit of my patients to kind of make sense of what's going on. So um, we're nearing the end of our time for the show. I thought maybe we can continue and talk about carers and caring for dementia and what kind of challenges that has. And I'm talking about the emotional toll that it takes. How Can you tell me about your experiences about carers and any stories you'd like to share? So I think people who care for those with dementia uh, take on one of the most challenging things that you could do in life. And that is more challenging, perhaps, if you are somebody who is emotionally or personally very close to that person who's got the dementia. In the early stages, I think it's important to say that many people can, you know, uh, function relatively independently with perhaps you know, small levels of support just to kind of make sure certain aspects that they're struggling with in their lives or they find challenging, you know, that their needs are met in those areas. And we hope and we're always aiming to maintain that period as long as possible. However, as the disease progresses, uh, people do lose the ability to do things. And certainly as a more moderate type of dementia uh, is is there, um, you know, people are likely to be struggling to stay orientated to time and place and what's going on. They may be starting to struggle with kind of key parts of their daily life, dressing, washing and so on, or elements of it, if not all of those activities. And then as dementia becomes more severe, obviously they become dependent, fully dependent on others for all elements of their care. I think one of the things that can be really distressing, um, sadly, in dementia is that people lose the memories of and they lose the sense of who they were as a person and they can do things which would be very out of character for them when they were well and this includes things like somebody can forget who a wife was or forget who a husband was or forget who their children were or even start referring to uh, a second wife or second husband by the name of their first wife or first husband which can obviously be really distressing People can also, as we've talked about, BPSD start to struggle with aggression or inappropriate sexual behaviour where perhaps that person had never really been like that as a as a person through their life. And that can be really upsetting to see somebody who you've had this close, uh, intimate relationship with sort of start to behave in ways that are really upsetting. The reason I think it's so important is that there's enormous burden of uh, care just looking after somebody you know making sure they're safe making sure they've got food and you know, their water and you know they're looked after that they're able to attend to their hygiene they're able to do things which they find interesting and enjoyable and that's aside from just the emotional burden of seeing this person lose those memories lose those abilities lose the person that they were to this terrible disease we can do a lot, though, to support people. And, and I think so third sector organisations do an enormous amount of incredibly valuable work with people. Uh, it's things like groups like Alzheimer's UK. And and that provides enormous support to carers and, and people suffering dementia. 
It's really important, though, that from an old age psychiatry point of view, we think about the needs of those carers. And that can be through supporting things like respite. And respite refers to uh, the person with dementia having uh, additional carers or going into a, a nursing home, perhaps for one week or two week period of time. And that just gives everybody a break and it allows some time for people to kind of recharge their batteries a little bit. But it can also be about having those conversations with people that where we honestly talk about what somebody's needs are and we think about where those needs are going to be best met. And for many people, as the dementia syndrome progresses, um, that may be a, a nursing home environment that's needed to, to properly look after them and make sure they're safe. And that can be very distressing because it can feel for people, I think, that they're uh, somehow not doing right, that you know, they're allowing this person to go into another place. Um, and that that exploring that is and making good decisions around that is a really important part of working as a, an old age psychiatrist and supporting people in making those decisions, supporting carers. I think the positive thing to say in all of this, though, is that there is a huge amount that we can do to support carers, first of all, by recognising the enormous burden they they have to bear, um, but also making sure that we support them and making sure that we, you know, we provide the access to the kinds of support that are going to help them do do that and i think the final thing i would just say is to recognize that the people who work in uh managed care environments residential homes nursing homes uh elderly mentally infirm emi homes um and specialist wards uh you know deploy an enormous amount of skill in and human and emotional skill in working with um, people with dementia and sometimes people with dementia who can be very difficult, can be very challenging to work with or are presenting with things that are, are really a difficult thing to go into work and work with. And, and they do an incredible job uh, in the main and, you know, are probably probably undervalued, you know, by society. And, and I think that's a great tragedy because it's such a it's such an incredibly valuable thing um, to look after to look after our elders in general, to look after older people and people as they as they go into the, the later parts of their life, but also to look after people with dementia. And so I think, you know, that's a really important part of it. And it's something that, you know, really important that we also recognise the enormous contribution of people who work in that sector and, and look after people. Right. Uh, thank you so much for that, uh, Thomas. I, I know that uh, asking an old age psychiatrist or specifically even something as as um, as broad as dementia and trying to condense that in, into about an hour, that's a difficult, difficult job. But thanks so much for sharing your time today and sharing your expertise as well. It's been my very great pleasure, Hassan. And uh, good luck with your new rotation. I'm so sorry that we haven't kept you in Lancashire but maybe you'll come back eh? <laughs> yes um, never say never uh, just for the listeners as well so as 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 Thomas just said I'm also shifting cities and going to the big smoke now for some higher training and we'll this will be our season finale and we'll be back in November with our new season see you soon November said I'll be gone till November I'll be gone till November you tell my girl you I'll be gone till November I'll be gone till November I'll be gone till November